1: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's programme, are the Wallabies cocky or simply confident ahead of the Bledisloe Cup test? We discuss the financial plight of provincial rugby in New Zealand and how will the Silver Ferns replace Timapara George. We talk to the new Warriors coach Brian McLennan and triathlete Andrea Hewitt prepares for this weekend's Olympic trial in London. The Blitterslow Cup test between the All Blacks and the Wallabies at Eden Park this weekend will be the All Blacks' last home test before the World Cup and has major ramifications ahead of the tournament. The Wallabies haven't won at Eden Park in 25 years, while the last time the All Blacks were actually beaten at the venue was in 1994. The return of veteran locks Brad Thorne and Ali Williams makes this the oldest all-black side ever, with an average age of just under 29, possibly prompting former Wallaby Totai Kefu to rate them as vulnerable and past their peak, despite, of course, the Wallabies being humbled by Samoa only a few weeks ago. On top of that comes fullback Kurtley Kirtley comments that a confident Wallabies' backline can tear any team apart, and it all-black's assistant coach Steve Hansen grumbling about Australia's lack of respect. But the veteran Australian rugby writer Wayne Smith told Murray Williams if there's a perception that the Wallabies are a bunch of young, cocky upstarts, it's misplaced.
2: Sometimes the problem that Kiwis have with Australians, they, they can't quite differentiate between cocky and confident. Uh, I certainly think this Australian side is confident at the moment. They're going out of their way to say they're not being cocky, and and it's funny, after all the brouhaha with uh, Steve Hansen saying there's no respect there, I actually traced back... Um, into some of the interviews I've done with the Wallabies over the past week, and there were plenty of comments there that were very respectful.
3: There's been a lot of talk about the Australian backline, uh, Quaid Cooper, uh, Kurtley Beale, and uh, Wilginia, a little bit of not so much emphasis, I guess, on the on the midfield. Adam Ashley Cooper, as uh, Conrad Smith is just saying as a player, he rates highly and is a bit underrated. When you look at that backline, it ripples with talent, really, doesn't
2: it? Well, it does, but you would have to agree that the Australian midfield, they're probably the straight guys to all the funny guys all around them. Particularly uh, Pat McCabe, I've got to say. He's probably the straightest, hardest runner um, Australia's had since, well, you know, Nathan Gray. So not the most creative player, but then again, when you've got so much creativity all around him, um, you know, maybe he's the perfect foil for a Quade Cooper and a Curtly Beal, those sorts of guys. Adam Ashley Cooper, goodness, uh, I don't know if you recall the test he played against uh, France at, at Stade de France last year but he just cut the uh, the French side up. Uh, the running lines that he came up with that day were just sub- sublime. So he's an underrated player, and, and you only have to hark back to Hong Kong last year to the, the, the try he scored there off a line-out, straight through a, a set-piece defence. So he's, um, he's quite a threat in his own right. He's had a... A pretty
3: subdued season with the Brumbies but I don't think there were too many Brumbies players who had good seasons. As far as the, uh, the Queensland Reds go, how much of the, the success of this Wallaby team when, and if they go through the season the way they're looking to get through to the, the, the playoffs and the World Cup and hopefully the final against New Zealand, how much of that is going to come down to Robbie Deans and how much down to you and McKenzie? Oh well goodness I mean they've both made great contributions certainly the Reds this year
2: have had, uh, the just um, revitalised Australian rugby there's no question of that. And Ewan McKenzie has done a fantastic job, basically by, by just realising what he has at his disposal and, and giving them their head. Robbie has been working with much the same sort of philosophy. He's taken uh, a lot of good young players from Super Rugby and brought them into the test side. You know, James O'Connor, I remember when he came in and made his debut, everyone was going, oh, this kid's too young, he's too small, he's too everything. Now he's a world-class player. You know the same with Kirtley Beal, the Genia-Cooper-Halves combination I, I would think is the best in the world at the moment, it's certainly the most dangerous, uh, that's not taking anything away from Dan Carter but I don't think you've got a halfback, I don't think anyone's got a halfback who do, who brings to the game what, uh, what Will Genia does
3: The Australians have have the habit Bob, my mum goes back to Bob Dwyer bringing in young players that people haven't heard of and perform spectacularly well, we do it to a lesser extent John Kerwin came in by that route but you look back, and there's been I mean, some great Aussie backlines that have been come out here that people hadn't heard of, and now that names like Horan and Little, for example, and, and Campese, household names, these guys are, are building towards that now, aren't they?
2: Well, you know, I mean, uh, I think probably in Australia it's a case that we give youth a go because we don't have the the options to to give experienced guys a go. Sometimes I remember being here in 1978 at Eden Park when a Wallaby side that was absolutely um, just riddled with injuries and guys were literally being flown in the night before the test and introduced to their teammates, went out there and bit the All Blacks 30-16. to 16. I mean, it can happen. That's the danger of the Australian side, and I'm sure everyone on this side of the ditch realises that is the danger of this Australian side, and that's what makes Bledisloe Tests, you know, so exciting. I mean, I was just looking at the stats. 95 tests wins to the All Blacks, 40 to Australia... So it's, it's more than 2-1 to one in favour of the All Blacks, and that's probably, if you were a bookmaker, that's probably how you'd frame the odds. But there's always that underlying sense with an Australian side that they can come out, and, and as Kurtley Beale said the other day, they can tear any side apart.
3: And the uh, 78 kind of marked the, the start, I guess, of that area, really, didn't it? There was the, the four tries, and I'm just trying can see Greg the Cornelsen. Greg Quinelson. I can see him now. From that time on, that was the point that the Bledisloe Cup became much more important than it had been up to that stage, didn't it?
2: Oh, I, uh, I think it was hidden away uh, collecting dust in some NZRU storeroom somewhere. Someone dusted it off, um, brought it over to Sydney, the Wallabies won, and then um, did a lap of honour with it. And the All Blacks stood there looking at that. And as we know from Hong Kong, they don't like seeing Australians celebrate. Um, so. I think suddenly, from being a, a half-forgotten trophy, this thing has become the be-all and end-all outside of a World Cup.
3: And as far as Robbie Deans is concerned, when you first went over there, you had the win in Sydney, and then t- pickings were fairly lean from that point on, but it looks like now that the, the, the work he's been doing is starting to come together. Criticism or observations on the other side of the ditch that uh, you guys are cresting and uh, we've, we're past the peak. How do you see that?
2: I know Eye Kefu came out with that. And again, I stopped playing for the Wallabies in uh, in 2003, so he doesn't have to um, face the repercussions of that. Oh, look, I don't see this all-black side as being over the crest. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, Zach Guilford and Corey Jane and the way they just injected so much life into, um, into that all-black attack last weekend, the wealth uh, that you've got in your front row, your back row, I'm sorry, uh, you know, and, and when you got the choice between Nonu and Sonny Bill Williams in the centres, goodness, uh, I don't see this as a side in decline at all.
3: And you do realise that if you, you know, go through to the final Eden Park and win it, that we're going to claim it anyway because we have a Kiwi coach and uh, James O'Connor was born out in West Auckland and uh, Quake Cooper comes in Tokoroa. So yeah, ah, yeah,
2: look, you know,
1: <laughs> we'll be quite happy to share that with you. <laughs> That's Australian rugby journalist Wayne Smith talking to Murray Williams. Meanwhile, off the field, the New Zealand rugby unions calling it the best financial news they've had in a long time. An NZRU audit report has shown that all but one of the ITM Cup provincial unions, Southland being the exception, were under the salary cap at the end of 2010. Southland exceeded the cap by $2,399. A $2 million cap was introduced in 2006, but it was reduced to $1.35 million, when the players' collective agreement was renegotiated, with a maximum salary at sixty thousand dollars, while thirteen of the fourteen unions came in under the salary cap, the NZAU's general manager of professional rugby, Neil Sorensen, concedes there's still some way to go for some unions to get their finances back on track.
4: It's one of the best um, pieces of news I think we've put out for a while uh, on the on the provincial union health or health of financial health of New Zealand rugby. It's the first. But a good news we've had for a while in my view Stephen um, you know apart from Southland who were what were they about two thousand four hundred or something like that um, over the cap and only because of previous sort of contracting behavior in the previous two three years um, for everyone else to come under the cap um, is is absolutely fantastic you know and it, we think it's a it's a really good sign um, that um, you know, the market is starting to, to normalise, um, that people are starting to live within their means, um, that some balance is coming back into the, the domestic, you know, the, the ITM Cup domestic market. So, yeah, this is, a, um, this is I'm not going to get too carried away, but it's certainly good news.
1: The concern, presumably, though, is that while only one of them uh, breached the salary cap, that they're still struggling to at least return a surplus, aren't they? I mean, Southland, yep, for example, absolutely. you had to, the NZR, you had to bail them out financially.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So as I say, it's a, it's a, it's one piece of good news, um, and now they need to work on their sustainability. eh? that's absolutely. But but if they can sort of, you know, um, the 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 salary cap um, is a is a big chunk of their, well, you know, for most of them, it's it's thirty six percent of their of their um, of their revenue. So it's a big chunk of their spend, you know, and um, and um, if they can get control over their, you know, their other costs, we're heading in the right direction, Stephen. eh?
1: is it the the salary cap that's the a big issue for them or how much of it is other factors as well
4: well they're still not living within their means a lot of them uh, as you say i mean there's still um there's not too many provincial unions who are shown a surplus in fact there's still quite a few provincial unions who are shown a loss i mean you know we have been quite open about that and um and they're needing to cut their their cloth to um to suit their um their income really and but but I but I think you'll find though that you know with um, with with a spend such as as this, which is a third of their their revenue, um, yeah, and for them to to come in under, uh, under under budget because pretty much it is a budget, basically it's a budget, has actually you know has shown some good good discipline, and in the area, uh, Steve, that um, that you know that we weren't very good at in the last few years. Put it this way, you know we'd be horrified if um, if after all the heartache we've had in the and the and the effort and the assistance and the hard work by everyone that uh, if we had numbers that were looking you know heading in the other direction put it that way. So
1: how many of the fourteen provinces are, are at break even point?
4: Well, I, I haven't got that right in front of me, but I'm I will guess um, that there's probably about um, four to five of the of the fourteen provincial unions that will post a loss this year. Um, and and um, you know we're still halfway to go through the year and halfway through the ITM Cup competition, so. But I, I would say that, um, based on the last figures I saw, there's four to five that are, you know, that are still still really struggling. But you know, this is a good step in the right direction.
1: Is the the salary cap at a, a level you're satisfied with, or does it need to come lower?
4: Yeah, that's something, Stephen. At the end of next year, the um, collective employment agreement is, um, expires, and that's something that we'll be sitting down with the with the players and the players' associations, and also the provincial unions to to look at the affordability of the ITM cap. Um, you know, as you know, we've we've um, collectively brought it down from, I just think it's just over two million at one stage, uh, Stephen, down to the the thirty six percent of their of their um, revenue, or, or you know, capped at one point three five. So we've made a big chunk in the right direction. Um, whether that's enough um, remains to be seen. Um, there's certainly um, you know anecdotal noises out there in provincial union land that that it needs to come down further. But you know, ultimately. Um, with this device that, that we've put in place, um, this mechanism we've put in place, is, is designed um, you know, so they can't spend more than they can actually earn. So, um, yeah, it's too early days to say at this stage, though, Steve.
1: Well, I suppose the, the salary cap, that, that, that limit is there, but whether, I mean, presumably any sort of fiscally responsible u- union would go, well, if we can't afford to pay it, or even though yep, they've got an upper absolutely. limit, you yep, you absolutely. would assume that that... that Sense of responsibility, like any household budget, would take over. But but is that presumably that maybe therefore means that approach that or feeling that well, if we don't get it right, the NZAU will will be there to as a as a backstop.
4: Um, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, if you're looking at some of the numbers, I know that um, uh, you know uh, looking down the list, Stephen, or from memory, there's, there's some unions who were I think Manawatu, for example, oh no, so it might have been Canterbury actually who were. You know, they had about four hundred, um, you know, headroom in their salary cap and I think counties Manica had about two hundred, so who else was there? Northland had about hundred and sixty and north um who was that? It was North Harbour had about hundred and sixty and Otago had about four hundred. So there was and then when I say headroom it means, you know, they could have actually, um, you know, by the regulations they could have spent that money on players but they didn't because they couldn't afford it. Uh, Tasman was another that you know, I think they their headroom was about two hundred thousand. In other words, um, yeah, they could have spent another two hundred thousand and stayed within the regulations, but um, you know those figures suggest that the people are are starting to live within their means, which is which is a good sign.
1: I was talking to the New Zealand Rugby Union's general manager of professional rugby, Neil Sorensen, and you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The veteran silver ferns mid-quarter, Temapara George, announced her retirement from international netball this week ending a career which has spanned more than a decade and 89 tests. George says she'd known for some time that the World Championship final loss to Australia last month in Singapore would be her final outing.
0: I had the processes go, like obviously just sort of thinking about things and um, wanting to do other things after the World Champs and obviously the kids and things like that, so um, yeah, I decided that after the World it, that would be it
1: doing other things, well, you've obviously got the family, um, anything, anything else in particular that you, you want to do?
0: Yeah, I'm actually looking at, well in the process of putting together, um, I want to do some coaching clinics um, for the grassroots level, um, at this stage just during the school holidays, um, uh, so putting those things together as well, so, um, so I'll get my netball fixed somehow.
1: You're coaching is a, a career path you'd like to go down, is it?
0: Um, No, no, not really. (laughs) It's just actually sharing uh, basic skills um, with the younger generation, um, with the grassroots level, um, just giving them the basic skills and teaching them about working in team environments, just the basic, basic skills of um, netball, really.
1: Now, this is a retirement from international netball. You're going to keep playing in the Trans-Tasman competition?
0: Yes, I'm playing for the RG Mystics next year, so, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well.
1: What are you going to miss most about the, the whole Silver Ferns environment?
0: Yeah, I think oh, I think I'm going to miss a lot of things. Um, I think the biggest thing um, is actually putting on that black dress and standing um, with your teammates beside you, listening to the national anthem. You know, that's something that I'll always treasure, and um, I'll yeah probably miss a lot.
1: What about as a player? How do you think you've you've changed over over the more than the, the decade you've you've been in the, the team? Because your reputation is obviously is very very dynamic. Fast, skillful player. Do you think? How do you think you've changed over that time?
0: There have been certain stages within my career that um, have, have changed. I think um, as I've kind of gotten older, and <laughs> do say it now, um, I've become more disciplined in different areas on court in terms of, um, you know, skill-based and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that that's probably the main thing.
1: The fact Irene's still there, does that make you think I could keep on going?
0: Oh, she's fantastic. She's a fantastic player. She's still got the goods, so why not, you know? And obviously we're in different... Um, I've got different things happening in my life, and, you know, she's happy to carry on Nebo, and so she should because she's still got the goods, like I said. So, um, Irene's just an amazing player. <laughs> she, she
1: didn't say to you, oh, you're, you're still way too young to retire, keep keep going?
0: Uh, no, no, she didn't, but I think she understands, you know, like... we. Kind of had a chat about it and, and things like that, so she definitely understands where I where I am at um, in my career. So um, yeah, no, she didn't. She didn't say that at
1: all. <laughs> Thinking back on the the world champs, Timurparad, is it is it easy enough to, to let go? What what happened, or was it gone pretty much after the tournament, or does it still haunt you a bit?
0: Ah, uh, no, and I think every sportsman can say there is a process that you go through when you win a big event. Um, we went on holiday after after uh, the World Champs, my partner and I, and there are the moments where you kind of don't think of it when you're busy, but when you're lying in the sun and just not doing anything, it, you just play the game over and over and over in your head and you wish you could just change little things, but it never happens. So that process needs to happen. Um, otherwise, you could just hold on to it forever
5: <laughs> and it's
0: not good for you.
1: Looking back, what, what do you see as the, I presume that there are some, some, maybe some obvious highlights, but if you could t- tell us what they, what they are.
0: Yeah, obviously the 2003 World Champs in Jamaica, and then the uh, Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006. Um, first time I'd been to those big events um, as a netballer, and um, yeah, and we won both of them, and I was on the court as well. So those definitely were um, the highlights of
6: my career.
1: Meanwhile, the Silver Ferns coach Ruth Aitken says George will be sorely missed.
6: She has been the real dominant um, mid-quarter over over the decade, really. Um, in terms of uh, what has developed as an incredible netball head, she reads the game really well, um, and and has that ability to. Um, to sort of pop up here and there whenever she's needed. She she did probably coin the phrase, you know, pocket rocket started from her um, as that really explosive um, mid quarter that could come out with especially in those earlier days some intercepts that were unbelievable um, and and had great vision on attack as well. So. Um, she's, you know, she's won a world championship back in two thousand and three. She's had um, two Commonwealth Games golds. Um, unfortunately, missed out on the icing on the cake um, uh, last month. But um, yeah, she's she's brought such a lot to the group uh, to the group, and and I'm I'm sure she'll, you know, she'll continue to contribute to netball in, in some shape or form for the next wee while.
1: You mentioned that she's been the the dominant mid quarter, I suppose, on the international mm. scene for the past ten years it 's going to be a huge loss for the the silver ferns in an area that is so crucial yeah. to the to the game and
6: yes.
1: how can the silver ferns cope
6: yeah look it is it is a real key area um, I think often what 's seen as the is the finished queens in terms of the shooters, that the ball that is delivered to them um, is is really vital. So it's the it's time for others that they have to step up in terms of um, you know our, I think we are reasonably healthy in the and the youngsters coming through in that um, mid court area. Obviously Liana Leota's um, you know got, got an opportunity now to um, to get more quality court time and, and cement a position there. Um, but with Camilla Lee's and Grace Rasmussen also um, you know looking particularly towards next year, um, they're they're both talented players that. that can come through in that mid-court. So, um, you know, we we do feel comfortable with where things are at, but, yeah, you don't um, replace 89 caps overnight, that's for sure. So there will be a bit of um, a growing pains as as we develop more experience in that mid-court.
1: You haven't quite got someone that can step into the role, have you? I mean, that, that automatically mm. says, this is my position now.
6: No, um, although probably Leanna Leota would be the closest to that. Um, and um, although this year hasn't been probably quite as uh, as a dominant year as as she had last year, so you know she's now got that opportunity. Um, it will be exciting to see once uh, Kayla Cullen comes into camp um, how she develops and where where she's you know where she sort of ends up. She's probably at the moment a uh, such an incredibly versatile player that um, yeah. you know, one of the challenges um, she started out in the, as a shooter, she ended up in the in the circle, and then she's been playing a bit in the mid court as well. So is is looking at where and where we think she might slot in in the future too so um you know there's a yeah there's a lot of um uh, probably sorting out to be done, but that's probably appropriate at the at the start of a four year cycle.
1: Tim Oparra's decision obviously raises the question about uh, people's future, Ruth and yours. Where, where are
6: you at? <laughs> um, right. Well, I'm. Yeah, I'm in the process of working things through with Netball New Zealand at the moment. We've only just I'd only just come back from leave, um, so um, I have nothing further to add, unfortunately, at this stage. And every, but everything should be a bit clearer in a couple of weeks.
1: The fact that you're about to are going to name Casey Williams stand in yeah. though would tend to suggest that you plan on sticking around.
6: <laughs> you never know what what's happening, um, Stephen. Um, no look at the you know, at the moment my I mean my I am contracted as Silver Ferns Coach till the thirtieth of um, of September um, i've been working closely this last week with the National selection panel as business as usual um, getting this squad together um, and then the um, camp will be early September where the um, uh, where the captain will be named after that so um, I'm sure before that stage um, things will be clearer as to what's happening with the silver fence job and um, yeah. We'll Although it would be a see. bit odd,
1: would it not, if you're naming the captain and then we're going to stand down and someone else is going to take them into those tests against Australia.
6: Um, well, um, I don't know. I've, yeah, I haven't actually worked through the, the finer points of that of, um, mid-September announcement and there's a lot to be sorted out before then. So um, it would be logical for um, whoever's going forward um, to, to name that, yes. Um, we'll just have to see when that happens.
1: I was talking to Silver Ferns coach Ruth Aiken. And you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Houston. The former Kiwis coach Brian McClennan will take over at the Warriors next year, replacing Ivan Clary, who signed with the National Rugby League Club Penrith from next year. McLennan had been tipped as Clary's replacement after Clary announced in June he was ending his six-year tenure at the club. McLennan signed a two-year deal. He was Kiwis coach from two thousand and five to two thousand and seven, during which time the Kiwis trounced Australia twenty four nil in the final of the two thousand and five Tri Nations final in Leeds. He also went on to coach Leeds in the UK, and he spoke to Joe Porter about what his latest assignment means.
7: It's a wonderful opportunity, and you know, and carries with it a, a massive responsibility. Uh, I really want to. Uh, continue on the good work that's been done by the Vodafone Warriors, in particular Ivan Cleary and and his staff and and, and all the players. That so, you know, I feel a, a a big responsibility to carry that on.
8: Like you say, it is a big responsibility, but it also also must be quite nice to be um you know joining a club that has has put so many things in place and is really um are making such good progress and in such good form.
7: Yeah, yeah, they they certainly have, and I mean the the under 20s are flying along with with John Ackland and. You know, last year being being the premier years and being so successful, and and this year flying along as well, and uh, you know, and the top sides really uh, gathering great momentum at the at the right time of the year, and uh, you know, and the, the the recruitment's been great, and just the, the Warriors brand and the marketing, and uh, just the the uh, leadership through the Warriors from from Wayne, and it's just been fantastic. So. That's a, you know it's a really, really good time to 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 uh, you know to to be in the club and you know and i I really respect that and i'm I'm grateful for this opportunity.
8: When did you first uh, find out that this job opportunity may be arising?
7: well when um when ivan uh, uh, decided to to uh, take up the penrith offer um, then then you know that's when the job come up, so you know, I came back from England uh, in the hope that this would happen one day. Uh, you know, and and the way things have turned out, um, you know, it's worked out really good. Uh, you know, but and you know, I'm grateful to Leeds, uh, you know, but it wasn't for them or wouldn't be uh, in the position I am in today. Um, you know, I got the opportunity to work with some great people over there and, and talented people and, and um, you know, and we... we Went on a great journey together where we, you know, tasted some success and, you know, I learned a great deal and so, I'm confident I can come back and, and and get in with the Vodafone Warriors with, with uh, new things I've learned, um, you know, because there's people Im- involved at the Warriors that I work with in the Kiwis, uh, so you know, about three years at least, I'm, I'm sure I'll come back and, and uh, you know, I'll be able to to, to um, Add a lot more than what I used to, but also I know that they they would have picked up a lot of uh, a lot of uh, new new ideas and and new things that work that that we can all put it all together and, in a pot and mix it up and see if we can come up with uh, a really good um, you know plan.
8: You talk about your time at Leeds. Do you think the systems over here are very different from the UK Super League?
7: Not really. I think uh, the the big difference between uh, the Super League and the NRL is the 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 uh, prep the physical preparation. Uh, in the NRL, you get you get a chance to, well, you get your pre-season, uh, you know, with the sun on your back, and you get a bigger pre-season, and you can just get a lot more done. Uh, whereas pre-season's for the Super League are in uh, December, January, and uh, yeah, it's snowing and it's cold and you can hardly get outside so you don't get that opportunity to to get a really good base on the players so that that's the main thing um, the analysis systems here are very very good, it's NRL stats and it's, it's really easy to edit uh, you know, uh, video clips of, of, of players and also um, of, of uh, groups of players like players on the edge or middle zone players, it's just it's, it's easier to give video feedback. The systems in England aren't as good. So, you know, it just makes it easier so you can uh, you can do it quicker. So that that's a big difference as well.
8: You've had a title with the Kiwis as well as with Leeds. Obviously, an NRL championship win would cap things off quite nicely.
7: Yeah, it would. On a personal level, it would, yeah. Um, knowing that you've been in every competition and, and, and won with your team, and I've managed to do that with with every team I've ever coached, we've gone on to be the best team in that competition, and um, you know, and uh, I'm looking at the Vodafone Warriors now, and and, and hoping uh, for Ivan and all the boys right now that they can go on and, and win the premiership this year. You know, my tenure starts in 2012, uh, so you know we'll head off on that journey in 2012 with with the ambitions of, of trying to win a premiership in that year as well.
8: You've talked before about the prospect of coaching in the NRL as being a challenge that you'd love to take up. I mean, obviously, do you see yourself having a long career in the NRL? You hope.
7: Well, look, it's, it's when you're in this position, it's year by year. It, you know, it's a results-driven business, and you know, and that's and that's the way it is, and that's good. That's what makes you jump out of bed every morning with a spring in your step, and you, you, you know, you you know, you've got to keep fighting every day, and. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Um, there's a term amongst coaches, uh, it's it, uh, when you've been out of it, and if you're going to get back in, they'll say, you, say you're going to get back in the cage again. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the cage.
1: That's newly appointed Warriors coach Brian McLennan talking to Joe Porter. This weekend's round of the Triathlon World Championship Series at Hyde Park in London may be a test event for the 2012 Olympics, but of more significance to the New Zealand athletes is whether they'll be back there in a year's time. The event doubles as an Olympic trial for New Zealand athletes with a top 10 finish for the first two New Zealanders, effectively booking a spot at the Games. Andrea Hewitt, who's ranked third in the World Championship Series, told John Whiting she's confident about her chances.
5: Everything's going well. I um, I was fourth in the last race in Hamburg, so yeah, it's it's going well for For this race because it was only three weeks ago so like not much has changed i mean i i think i'm still in that good shape so i think it'll, it'll be good for this weekend and have you had a chance yet to have a really good look at the london course does it do you think it suits your style of racing yeah for me now i think it does it's i think it is a fast course it's um it's all flat with it's i don't know it's got many corners in it but it's around the city so i'm pretty sure it's technical, so I think it's good for me. Um, the last two years has been non-wetsuit swim, too, and that's a big thing for me at the moment. Uh, Hamburg was a wetsuit swim, and I was right like, in there just to make that the front group, so hopefully, yeah, it's a non-wetsuit swim, and that'll be good for me. There's pressure. I mean, I have to perform on, on in this one race on the day, so yeah, I, I just need a top 10, and that's that's what I'm going for. And I guess it's it's pretty hard to have the Olympics out of your mind going into the race. It'll be crazy because the next time we race in could be the the Olympics because it's the same course next year. So it's cool to just race on the same course and be able to just, yeah be able to be there and see what it's like. And what have your last few weeks of training been like? Really hard. <laughs> Some of the hardest training I've done. Like yeah, I've been really tired, but. This week I'll freshen up and then I'll be ready for for the race. There's only there's 55 on the start list for the Olympics, so and there's only three countries which can have three athletes in the race. So that's what it's the it's those big countries that have had three good athletes that can qualify, and then there's even more that could that are fighting for the spot. So the other countries that have got this is the qualifying race. So yeah, it's important for probably yeah for the eight countries that are that are the top countries. And a top 10 performance will secure you a spot, so it would be good to kind of get that uncertainty out of the way with a good race in London? It's the same as what happened for Beijing, and I didn't make it And when I finished 14th in the selection race, and it was top 10 there. So I really, like, I've improved, I know I'm better now, and it's better to secure them the spot now rather than at the start of next year when the next selection races are.
1: That's New Zealand triathlete Andrea Hewitt. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Until next time, I'm Stephen Hewson.
3: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues